0: not too hard for most of us to picture Jesus doing his ministry, the religious things, like teaching the crowds and healing people and worshiping in the temple. But can you picture Jesus enjoying the simple pleasures of life? Like, can you picture Jesus around the campfire with the twelve? And one of his disciples relays something funny that happened in the day, and Jesus laughing until the tears are just streaming down his face. Can you picture him that way? Can you picture Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden just getting mesmerized with skipping rocks across the shore? And the disciples join in. And one of them, he notices, is just slightly off balance as he reaches for a rock. And Jesus just gives him that extra little nudge and knocks him in the water. Can you picture Jesus doing that? (laughs) Or later that day, they're walking by the Sea of Galilee and the sun starts to set and it's just one of those nights when every shade of color is present in the sky and they just stop and enjoy the sunset. Can you picture Jesus like that? Can you picture Jesus asking Martha, one of his close friends, if she would just... I mean, seriously, tomorrow night, could you just make that lamb stew? Because I am so craving that. Can you picture Jesus enjoying the simple pleasures of life? Now, I have friends who are Christians who just mentioning Jesus and pleasure in the same sentence, they'd have some serious problems with that. They can't associate the two. I don't know why. I mean, in Jesus' day, there were people who had problems associating Jesus and and pleasure. I mean, Jesus was called a glutton and a drunk because of his ministry style. He went to parties, he ate, he drank. He didn't take the ascetic path that John the Baptist did and so they called him a glutton and a drunk in her book Eat Pray Love, Elizabeth Gilbert says that her own ancestral family had problems with the word pleasure it's understandable I mean her dad was actually from a Swedish root or her mom was from Swedish root, her dad's roots went back to English Puritans, you put those two together you're going to have problems with pleasure She said that as she looked back through her family photographs, her relatives looked like that if they had ever found anything pleasurable, they would have stomped it with their hobnail boots. You have family members like that? You can blame it on them. I did a little experiment this week. Posted on Facebook that I was going to be teaching this morning on pleasure. And it said just that I felt like pleasure was something that needed to be experienced more than studied. Within minutes, a few of my 1,700 friends posted that they'd seen enough of that out of pastors in recent years. Instantly, when I said the word pleasure, their mind went to sinful behavior. Why is that? That as Christians, we... Instantly associate pleasure and sin? Why is it that we have phrases like guilty pleasure, sinful pleasure? Why do we ask ourselves with pleasure the question, do I deserve this? Maybe it was questions like that that drove Solomon to a little experiment, a dangerous experiment. One that is recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. An experiment, frankly, that should have had a warning label attached to it that says, don't try this at home. Solomon's experiment was driven by a question that I think a lot of people still have today. It was a question basically that boils down to this. Can the all-out pursuit of pleasure... Add meaning to our fragile and temporary existence. So what does God say about this thing called pleasure? I mean, really. Well, he says, first of all, one very clear principle. And it's this. God created pleasure when he created the world as a sensual place and us as sensual beings. Have you ever wondered why God created the world as he did? I mean, maybe you've never sat around and thought about this, but on lazy afternoons when I get some time to think, I've wondered, why did God make the world so beautiful? Really? Why did he make 16.8 million colors, which is what I'm told there are, instead of just the eight that we got in our first box of crayons in first grade? Really? And why did he give us the ability to see those colors? when there are some animals on the earth that can't like your dog why did God create a world with so many tastes seriously instead of just like one taste for things that are okay for us and good for us and one taste for things that are bad for us I mean I wouldn't have some of the problems I had if he had done that would you with me on that Why did God create a world with such variety and beauty in things like animals and fish and birds and insects and people? If God had so chosen, he could have created a world that was all barren, like the Badlands of South Dakota or the outback of Australia. It could have all looked like the frozen tundra of the Arctic. He could have created a single ecosystem and created us with the ability to live in it if he had chosen to do that. But he didn't. And it's pretty clear as you read Genesis that God took a level of pleasure and joy in the act of creation. And you can skim by it if you want to as you read Genesis. But when God was creating, every single day when he got done, you have to read this soulfully, but God stepped back at the end of every day of creation and looked at what he did and he went, Oh, 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 that's good. (laughs) I mean, that's... The literal translation of the Hebrew. And then, when he finished, he got to the end of his creation on day six. He took man and woman. He placed them in the best garden that he had created. The choicest of his creation. He took man and woman and he placed them in the garden. And he went, whoa, that's very good. And I have to believe that a part of that was that he now had something that he had created that could enjoy the beauty of what he had created with him. Then you flip over into centuries later the Apostle Paul's writings and what he said to his protege Timothy. And Paul reminded Timothy that this same loving God that took joy in creation now richly provides us with everything for what? Not just our sustenance, but our... Enjoyment. When you begin to see the through line of Scripture, you begin to realize that God wants us to enjoy the pleasures of this life. He wants us to. Now, if I ask you to enjoy some things in your life that are pleasurable, some experiences you've had that you've taken great joy in, what would come to mind? I can tell you what they are for me. I love, I love, love, love being in the woods in the fall. I love that when I walk, I kick up the earth and I smell the fresh earth under my feet. I love hearing the woods come to life in the early dawn. I love hearing the leaves rustle with the wind. I loved a few years ago being able to take my wife, my kids out in Monterey Bay to go whale watching and watching a 70-foot humpback whale Surface right underneath our boat. I loved that when it got to the surface, I loved hearing the laughter of my wife and kids, my own laughter, as when it surfaced, it exhaled. And we all just laughed with joy. I also, sick as it is, enjoyed the disgust on their face as the whale blow blew across (laughs) the boat and smelled of a weak, old, dead fish. We had some serious hygiene issues. I love the taste of really good food enjoyed with really good friends. I love a glass of really good port with dark chocolate. I love a fall, rainy day with a fireplace and a good book in the company of my wife in an overstuffed chair and a view of a lake now your experiences your memories of what's pleasurable are definitely different than mine there may be some similarities and to be certain there are things in this life that are not pleasurable but our world abounds in pleasure do you agree? And I believe our God delights in the pleasure we receive from the good gifts he gives to us as his children. But still, Solomon's question is hanging out there. What about pleasure as a pursuit? Now, I'm confident that Solomon knew all about God and pleasure and what I've just described. Because the Bible describes him as the wisest man that ever lived, and he certainly was the wealthiest man that had ever lived by the time we encounter him in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so Solomon takes a gamble. And here's what he says to himself. Come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. Maybe, he says to himself, in the all-out pursuit of pleasure, I can add meaning to my life. So he sets out to experiment with every type of pleasure he can imagine, and he can do it. Unlimited power, unlimited wealth is all at his disposal. And so he sets out on what would make a great miniseries for MTV or HBO. Seriously, if you read this, it's unbelievable what Solomon does. So let's look at his own account. He says, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself, here's his first experiment, with wine. While still seeking wisdom, now that's doubtful, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I would suggest that this was in his 18 to 25-year-old range while he was in college. Because the meaning here is not that Solomon became a wine connoisseur. He wasn't working to distinguish the difference between a Lebanese and a Syrian cabernet. Solomon, <laughs> Solomon set out to drink wine, copious amounts of wine, and Solomon became a drunk. And perhaps it was during his experiments with wine that he wrote Proverbs 23. See if you can identify. In the end, it, wine, bites like a snake and a poisonous viper. Here's description. It's so real. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind will imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you'll say, and, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. Kind of sounds like the first time I had too much to drink. You remember what that feels like? Oh, come on. I know you're in church, but don't leave me hanging. I'm not the only one. Some of you just need to confess during communion later. Solomon goes on to tell us that wine wasn't it. That didn't bring him, that copious amounts of wine didn't bring him enough happiness. So he went on to engage in building great buildings all over Jerusalem. Now we're entering his stage of life that I would say is the MTV Cribs portion. So he says, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks and I filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate the many flourishing groves because he's living in the middle of a desert region. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the other kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me, which is not a huge statement because there had only been two. But still, he's boasting about it. Now, this wasn't about being a benevolent king. This wasn't about building a park district for all of the people who lived in Israel. This was selfish, self-indulgent pleasure. This was about his ego, what he wanted, in order to seek pleasure. When one park didn't satisfy him, he built another and another and another. This is like his own personal six flags. He's building bigger and bigger and bigger. And still, it didn't satisfy him. It left him feeling hollow and empty, unsatisfied. The pleasure meter was not registering high enough for Solomon. And so he went to the next item on his list, money. And you have to understand that when he became king, he was already the wealthiest person who had ever taken the throne of Israel, who had ever ruled as a judge in Israel. And yet he set out to become even wealthier. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. And yet by his own word in Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon says The summation of that for him was that those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Now, interestingly enough, Solomon leaves out part of the story here. He's listed all of these things he's tried. He leaves out part of the story. Ecclesiastes as a book is actually the end reflection of Solomon's life. And it actually is a Greek name to a Hebrew book. It's actually Ecclesia, the gathering. So he's gathered everyone together and is giving a lecture on the reflections and the wisdom of his life. He leaves out one key part of the story. When he's tried everything else, Solomon resorts to sexual experimentation. To find that, you have to go to the record of the kings, which is in 1 Kings 11. And if you read that, you find that Solomon's last experiment was sexual experimentation. Solomon wasn't happy in his marital bed. And so Solomon amassed 700 wives of royal birth. Hang on, guys, because they all came with 700 mother-in-laws. He also got 300 concubines. Now, we're also in Illinois where there's lots of farming. I did not say 300 combines. I said 300 concubines. Hear that, playboy bunnies. He gathered 1,000 women for his sexual pleasure. He left out that little detail when he was telling people about his wisdom. When it was all said and done, Solomon was empty on the inside. Here's what he said. Here's his summary reflection on the all-out pursuit of pleasure. I had everything a man could desire. You don't hear many people say that, do you? So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. That's a suspect statement. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything that I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless. Like chasing after the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. What went wrong? What happened? I mean, if God created pleasure and put us in this world to enjoy it, if He takes pleasure in us enjoying what He created, where did Solomon's experiment go wrong? If you remember, his experiment was about discovering meaning in life, He wasn't testing to see what brings pleasure. Because if he did that, I mean, he could have produced a long list of the things that brought pleasure to him. But let's be honest. The things that he did, did bring him pleasure for a time. Instead, for a season, he made pleasure his obsession. You ever done that? Have you ever found something in your life, a hobby, a type of food, a relationship, and made it an obsession. Because when we do that, when we let that item, that person, that activity become an obsession, we let it have a place in our lives that only God deserves. It becomes an idol for us, as the Bible describes it. We begin to worship and pursue that thing with all of our time, all of our energy, all of our money. And when that unending, insatiable appetite rules us, the pleasure portion is transformed from this beautiful gift that God gives us into something the Bible describes as lust. And we become ruled by it. And what freely once gave us pleasure is now completely spoiled. And the challenge is to keep it in balance. So how do we do that? What did Solomon learn about keeping pleasure in balance? Let me give you two key thoughts that Solomon came to after intense experimentation, after intense personal pain and mistakes. For Solomon, it really came down to two things. First, he said this, Enjoy your everyday life now. Actor-comedian Jim Carrey said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they dreamed of so that they can see that's not the answer. I think that's at the heart of what Solomon meant when he came to the conclusion of things in Ecclesiastes 2.4 and said, So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work then I realized these pleasures are from the hand of God. It's your everyday life. Don't get caught up in chasing after something you believe is missing in your life that's going to bring you pleasure. There is enough joy, Solomon says. There is enough pleasure in your everyday life. And it's a theme that is so important that in a book that's only 12 chapters long, Solomon repeats that theme almost word for word three times. Slow down enough to enjoy the good things that God has put right in front of you. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said, Most men pursue pleasure with such breathless haste that they hurry right past it. I had a great reminder of this recently. We've lived in the same house in Elgin for almost 10 years now. Behind us is an 80 acre uh, piece of forest preserve owned by Kane County. Now it was not forest preserve for the first four or five years, three years probably that we lived there. I'm getting old, I lose track of time. Um, But it has been forest preserve for a long time now. Um, Every, tuck that piece of knowledge away, every year for probably 10 years now. We've also made a trip in the spring to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee uh, with my parents. We love the wildflowers that bloom in the Smoky Mountains. It's just a quirky thing about me. I love walking through the forest, seeing the wildflowers. I have literally thousands of pictures of the wildflowers. Drives my wife nuts uh, how many pictures I take of these little insignificant flowers that are there. One of the flowers I love is trillium. Um... And one of the hardest to find down there is red trillium. It's just really hard to find. In some sections of the United States, there is a particular red trillium that's gone extinct. It's called toad trillium. Um, It's about six inches tall. Uh, It's just really hard to find. And I've never found it down there. This past spring, for the first time, we've lived there almost 10 years. We took a walk in the woods behind our house. I was shocked. Because as we're walking, not deep in the woods, probably 30 yards behind our house, we're walking and I'm astonished to find not one, but literally dozens of toad trillium right behind our house. I pulled out, this is a a grainy picture of it, I pulled out my camera on my phone and started taking pictures and trying to keep the grandkids from walking on it. (laughs) I was astounded. It's been right behind my house all this time. Simple pleasures that I hadn't slowed down enough to take a walk right behind my house in the early spring. What's in your everyday life that you're hurrying right past, not enjoying the people, the things. The second perspective from Solomon would be this. Enjoy your everyday life right now from the right perspective. There are some passages in scripture that you can read through and not understand. You kind of go, what? I have no idea what God means. Solomon says one of those, and it's full of Jewish colloquialisms, and I'm going to ask you to do something with me now that hopefully will anchor this in your mind, of the right perspective. In Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6, Solomon says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What he's talking about is three general attitudes that we can have in our life about engaging with this good world that God gives us and the good God that we serve. And it's really three postures we can take that are, gener- that are demonstrated by our hands. The first one, he says, is fools fold their hands. So just take your hands, put them together, and lay them in your lap. Folded hands in Scripture aren't an attitude of prayer. They're an attitude of being a victim. It's an attitude of kind of folding your hands, dropping your head and saying, I'm giving in, I resign. I'm a helpless victim in this world, there's nothing I can do and so I just give up. I'm not going to engage anymore. In the good things of God, I'm not going to try, I'm done. Solomon says, if you do that, you're a fool and you're ruining your life. The third posture he talks about, he says, is two hands full with toil. And it's equally as destructive. It's like this. Make two fists and clench them tightly. Solomon says a person like this is at the other end of the continuum. It's beyond working hard. This is the person who has it all their hands are full, and they're clenching it. They're fighting hard. They're still throwing elbows, working to get to the top, and they don't even realize what's in front of them. Solomon says they can't appreciate what's around them because they're still trying to get to the top. It says a person like that's just chasing the wind. It's futility. They'll never be satisfied because their hands are so full and they can't appreciate what they have. But he gives us a third option. He says there is a third option here. Better one handful with tranquility. Peace. That's a posture of saying, I don't have my hands completely full, but I've got one handful don't have everything I wished for in this life. Don't have everything I dreamed for, everything I'd hoped for. My life isn't everything that I thought it could be. But you know what? In this one hand, I've got some pretty amazing things. I've got a lot of pleasure, a lot of joy in this life. And I'm choosing peace. Choosing to be grateful for what I do have. Using to focus on the full hand instead of the empty one, and to take joy in that. You get to this one-hand-full-with-tranquility posture in a couple of ways. I mean, you can get there in Solomon's path, but not many of us have unlimited power, unlimited wealth. Most of us get there other ways. Some of us get there through pain and tragedy in our lives been following a blog that was created on May 25th by two of my friends, Doug and Lori. Their dad was fishing in Ontario, Canada. His boat tipped over. They held out hope for two days that he'd be found. Since, they've just been waiting for his body to be recovered. The days since have caused them to refocus, and you can see it in the words on the blog, to focus on the one handful of blessings that they've got. They've slowed down a lot. You slow down, you focus on the one handful you've got when tragedy comes, when the phone call comes that cancer's there. It'll force you to do that, at least for a time. Most of us in the room this morning aren't facing those things, and so we're, we're lucky we have a choice. We have the choice this morning to be able to say, without those things facing us, I choose to be a one-handful person. To see what I have and be grateful, to see what I have and take pleasure in it. To enjoy my everyday life now, not in a few years not when I retire not when the kids leave home not when the baby's done with teething not whatever you're facing now I choose to enjoy life now I choose to take pleasure in the simple things of life that I've been hurrying past and to say thanks to the God of the universe who richly provides me with everything for my enjoyment